dedicated to the survival of American democracy in an increasingly dangerous world, this is Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney, acted as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy under President Ronald Reagan, founder of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C., the go-to man for defense and foreign policy issues, joined by the greatest minds in the security policy business, the special forces in the war of ideas at Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney. Welcome to Secure Freedom Radio. This is Frank Gaffney, your host and guide for what I think of as an intelligence briefing on the war for the free world. A man who brings great intelligence to bear on various aspects of this war for the free world, which is, after all, as we address day after day on this program, a multi-dimensional as well as highly dynamic phase of this long-running war, is our first guest. He is Robert Spencer. I'm delighted to say he is a senior fellow of the Center for Security Policy. He is also uh, the director of a really invaluable resource online at jihadwatch.org. It is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center, where he is a Shulman Fellow. He is the author of, last count, 23 books, including The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam and the Truth About Muhammad. Uh, he also has several at the Center for Security Policy Press, including most recently Islamophobia and the Threat to Free Speech. Uh, he has a new one coming out, about which we will be talking in due course. But it's always good to visit with Robert Spencer. Welcome back, sir. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Frank. Always good to talk to you. I want to start with Afghanistan, Robert. Uh, both what's happening there, what's happening in the neighborhood, and what might be coming to a theater near us as a result of, well, tens of thousands at a minimum of unvetted Afghan individuals being deposited in this country in the aftermath of our defeat at Joe Biden's hands in the country. Um, Start with what we can tell is taking place on the ground for uh, the people of Afghanistan, for Americans who, uh, well, as we're told by the Biden administration, want to be there or, or otherwise can't get out. And what that tells us about the nature of the regime, as well as uh, what it's now doing in Tajikistan. As expected, Frank, the Taliban is ruthlessly enforcing Sharia in Afghanistan, and that is done in every detail. In other words, every aspect of women's rights has been severely curtailed, and uh, the world media fell for the promises that the Taliban issued, saying we're going to respect women's rights within the limits of Islamic law, without realizing that Islamic law doesn't really grant women any serious right. So they are... Uh, at a complete disadvantage at this point, relegated to domestic servitude, essentially, and that's all that they have to look forward to in the future there, as long as the Taliban remains in power. Meanwhile, of course, they have billions and billions of dollars worth of American military equipment, and in line with their statements here again about exporting their jihad outside Afghanistan, they have now begun to equip the Jamaat Ansarullah, the uh, Tajik Jihad group that is trying to overthrow the government of Tajikistan now. And so uh, this American equipment, I think we're going to see 
being used to foment a great deal of instability in the region in the near future. Well, as you say, this isn't exactly a surprise, but is it fair to say that the inspiration that the success of the jihadis in Afghanistan have achieved over the United States is assuredly emboldening at a minimum, if not actually empowering uh, the global Islamic movement much farther beyond Central Asia, Robert. Yes, there's no doubt about it. Jihad group and their sympathizers have published multiple statements over the last few weeks saying that uh, this has been a tremendous victory for Islam in Afghanistan, and it's a signal that Allah has decided to bless the jihad of the Muslims at this time. And consequently, we're going to see, and we're already seeing, a tremendous emboldening of the jihadis around the world because they think that this is an opportune moment for them to act. And so I think that it's not a coincidence that in Iran, the new president, Ibrahim Raisi, has appointed numerous hardliners, as he himself is a hardliner, to his government, because uh, this is not a time, clearly, he believes, for conciliation, for negotiations, for talks with the United States. Uh, the United States, he perceives as weak and considers it to be a time to take advantage of that weakness by advancing the jihadist goals of the Islamic Republic as far as possible. Uh, there is another aspect to that that's worrying Robert, and maybe you could comment on it quickly. We've been told by the people who are supposedly monitoring the state of the Iranian nuclear weapons program that it is very close to having sufficient highly enriched uranium to manufacture one or more um, nuclear weapons. Um, there is a lot of uncertainty, I guess, still to be sure, but um, about, oh, eight, nine, Ten weeks ago, we were told they might be ten weeks away. Is there any evidence that you're familiar with that um, that the Israelis now are regarding this as an imminent peril to them and prepared to act accordingly? Yes, uh, I think that it's highly noteworthy, although it was virtually completely ignored that when the Prime Minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, met recently with Joe Biden, he said that he had refused three requests that Biden had made of him. And the third was in regard to Iran, although Bennett said that he was not at liberty to disclose the details about it. I think that it's likely, given the geopolitical situation, the state of the government in Washington and the state of the world in general, that Biden asked him not to strike Iran, and he said he couldn't give any such assurances because clearly the Israelis see that they're not going to get help from the United States in any significant way against Iran at this time. Iran is moving rapidly toward developing a nuclear weapon, and so the Israelis may have to go on their own to counter this threat. I think that's been clearly the case for some time, but uh, I understood that uh, Naftali Bennett had made some further statement when he was in Israel uh, after his meeting with Joe Biden that uh, that you know the time was was getting very close when something was going to have to be done about this. Reports to that effect, and uh, obviously we're distracted by developments elsewhere around the world, but this is one that is uh, is of enormous geostrategic 
consequence. Let me ask you about one other question with respect to Afghanistan and jihadism. Robert, when you were last with us, we talked a bit about uh, the importing into this country of large numbers of um, unvetted individuals, uh, at least some of whom uh, are military-age men. And I think it's only reasonable to expect that they have been imbued with the same uh, Sharia supremacism as is uh, widespread in their country, uh, not just among the Taliban, obviously, but uh, among the population at large. Can you characterize um, how you see the potential for some of those folks uh, becoming active jihadists in our country uh, as they emerge from the bases on which they're currently being held. There is no doubt that among the Afghan refugees, there are jihadis. This is because of a variety of factors. One is that uh, not long after the Americans abandoned, irresponsibly abandoned, Bagram Air Force Base in Bagram Air Base, in uh, Afghanistan, the Taliban went in and released from prison thousands of ISIS and al-Qaeda prisoners who were had been held there. And this was right before the plane started taking off for America. If you can imagine the chaotic situation at the Kabul airport, uh, who would be most likely to be able to muscle to the front of the line and get on those planes, but the most ruthless and violence of the people who were trying to do so. I think it's virtually certain that at least some of those ISIS and al-Qaeda prisoners were on those planes and are in the United States now. There have already been some arrests. Uh, There was uh, in Britain, one of the uh, Afghan refugees who had been uh, placed in a luxury hotel was the subject of a raid by British authorities who had determined that he was actually on a, apparently on a terror watch list. And uh, there have been also incidents of that kind in the United States, as well as arrests of Afghans uh, for acting as if they were still in Afghanistan, uh, in, 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 in short, by uh, engaging in spousal abuse and child sexual abuse, which is uh, two things that are generally accepted in Afghan culture, but of course not here. This kind of disruption and upheaval culturally, as well as the very live possibility that they're jihadis, we're going to be seeing a lot more of this in the United States in the near future. Similar considerations have prompted the polls recently to, um, again, I guess, uh, be communicating with Muslim immigrants, uh, not necessarily from Afghanistan, but um, that may have some of these same characteristics, essentially telling them to go back from whence they came. Uh, This is of a piece with, I think, the general attitude of those in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, not so much those in authority in Western Europe, Robert, uh, about the existential nature of the threat such immigrants pose to their countries, to their cultures, to their societies, to their people. Um, t- tell us what uh, we should know about what the polls are doing and uh, and whether this is a very sensible uh, approach to a very real problem. Yeah, it's, it's extraordinarily interesting in light of a lot of the controversies in the United States because uh, the polls have built a fence they are guarding their border uh, and telling, as you noted, the uh, 
migrants who are overwhelmingly Muslim that they need to go back. Uh, the polls have made no apologies about wanting to uh, preserve their own society and culture and noting that the migrants are bringing a radically different society and culture based on Sharia. Consequently, they uh, simply don't want them there. Um, most of them are coming from Iraq with some in, from Afghanistan and Syria and Polish officials, as well as some others in that area of Europe, in Hungary and elsewhere, have uh, been quite clear saying that uh, these people would be much more at home linguistically, culturally, religiously in uh, majority Muslim countries, which, of course, have no refugee problem, no illegal entry problem. And yet they're the natural destination, really, for these migrants uh, obviously, there's a very different agenda involved. Uh, many of them are economic migrants. Many of them are uh, wanting to extend the hijra, the uh, emigration for the cause of Allah, to take Islam into Europe. And uh, the Poles are one of the few who are standing against this. In fact, uh, this has been something that has prompted, uh, particularly with the Hungarians, but I assume with the Poles as well, uh, virulent criticism from Brussels over the lack of hospitality to uh, this uh, Muslim, principally Muslim immigrant influx. Is that right? Yes, that's right. The European Union is furious and has repeatedly rebuked the Central European states for supposedly not carrying their weight regarding the migrant influx. Apparently, the European Union has decided that it is an obligation of all the European Union states to take a certain number of so-called refugees, uh, without any regard for the cultural and societal upheaval that we have already seen happening in Germany, France, Britain, Italy, and elsewhere. And so uh, these Central European states, Poland, Hungary, and uh, to a lesser degree, Austria and some of the others, they are quite right to stand firm against this pressure, and uh, we can only hope that they continue, uh, because the consequences of this mass unvetted Muslim migration are already quite obvious in Germany and elsewhere in spikes in criminal, criminal activity, spikes in jihad activity, and more. Let me lastly ask you about um, a topic that we touched on last time you were with me, Robert, and that is the incompatibility between Sharia, this Islamic supremacist doctrine on the one hand, and religious tolerance. Uh, we discussed it then in the context of the appointment by the Biden administration of Rashad Hussein um, to be the next U.S. ambassador at large for international religious freedom. Um, you expressed some serious reservations about um, his ability to perform the function of promoting religious tolerance in light of the intolerance inherent in his faith doctrine. Um, this is would seem to be the same uh, problem, uh, something that would preclude uh, a recent joint declaration by uh, the Muslim World League, a prominent Muslim Brotherhood umbrella organization, and uh, the World Jewish Congress. Um, and yet they have uh, jointly express their um, strong commitment to religious freedom. What's going on here, Robert? And uh, where does the truth 
Why? Well, you know, the Muslim World League over the years, Frank, has uh, repeatedly expressed sentiments that would surprise, I believe, the uh, its friends in the World Jewish Congress. And it has uh, ties to various groups that uh, have been considered jihad-linked in the past. And consequently, I'm not sure this is very wise of the uh, World Jewish Congress to enter into this joint statement. Uh, I don't think that they can reasonably expect that the Muslim World League has set aside the imperatives to anti-Semitism in the Quran and the Hadith, the imperatives to jihad violence against Jews and others in the Quran and Hadith, and that consequently this is an exercise in trying to foster complacency regarding the jihad threat among non-Muslims in the West. And unfortunately, the World Jewish Congress is not sufficiently informed, I would imagine, about the uh, nature of Islamic doctrine and the teachings of the core documents of Sharia regarding the Jews and regarding jihad to be aware of how they are being manipulated in this case. For the moment, we have to leave it at that. Thank you for your time today and for the extraordinary job you do tutoring the rest of us. We appreciate it very much, and we look forward to talking with you again soon. Next up, we'll speak Thank with you very much. Robert Charles, former Assistant Secretary of State, about China and more right after this. <laughs> 